0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everybody. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center, and today I'm also joined by my friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. So today, Carrie has a mystery topic to talk about. She hadn't told me what it is, so that makes me a little nervous. So, okay, Carrie, you've got it. What's our topic?
1: So this is actually not one to be scared about because I was thinking back like, oh, what should we talk about when we record today? And I was thinking about way back when I was a camp counselor for high school kids who were interested in medicine. And one of the games that the counselors would play with the kids whenever we were like killing time in between lectures or doing one thing or the other is two truths and a lie. (laughs) And so I have two truths and a lie. And I want you guys to figure out which one is the lie. And then I figured on future episodes, each of you can take a turn <laughs> and come up with two truths and a lie.
0: That sounds excellent. Let me, let me remind you, we know that you've already worked at a wastewater treatment plant. So we know that's a truth. So don't use that one. All right,
1: crap. Got to check. Got to check that one off. <laughs> crap. No pun intended. But <laughs> I'll be here all week. Take your waitresses. Um, so, okay. Drum roll, please. Okay. Number one, I have toured the world playing English handbells before the age of 16. Okay. Okay. Number two, I have moved 10 times with 10 different addresses in the past 20 years. Okay. Okay. Number three, By the time I was in preschool, I was attending classes at Arizona State University. I grew up in the Phoenix area, so hence Arizona State. Okay, you want them again?
2: Nope. Handbells and traveling the world. The second one was, what was the second one, Abby? Oh,
0: that was the one I was going to say was false.
2: Um,
1: Traveling the world was the second one, right?
2: Traveling the world with handbells before she was 16. And then the second one was, what was the second one, Carrie?
1: All right. I'm going to read them again because you two clearly have questionable (laughs) listening skills. You need to to do an in-service on this. Okay. Um, And I will be equally as bad when you guys give me your two truths and a lie. Promise. So number one, I have toured the world playing English handbells before the age of 16. Number two, I have moved 10 times with 10 different addresses in the past 20 years. Number three, by the time I was attending preschool, I was enrolled in classes at Arizona State University.
2: Okay, so like I have a personal like love for handbells. I actually played handbells as a kid. <laughs> can we can we ask
0: you some questions like Truth or Dare or, or No? Nope. What's my line? No, we just, or, that's not all nope. the games
2: oh. played, Abby. You, we don't. Nope, you go.
1: just dive in and commit.
2: Ten addresses are very doable because. We, You know, as much as we move for like practices and residency and fellowship and you could move to different houses and things like that, that is doable. I think that's a truth. I think one of the lies is either the university or the handbells.
0: Okay, so here's what I think. I think that she's throwing something out there that we're going to bite on and go, oh, that's definitely a truth. Ten times, yeah, we move all the time. I was watching her facial expression and her eyebrows lifted a little bit when she said it. And when you said that you thought it was the truth, she was biting her lip. <laughs> so I think I think moving 10 times was the incorrect answer,
1: the falsehood.
2: Okay. I, I vote for the Arizona University one.
1: Okay. So we have one vote for Arizona State University and one vote for moving 10 times. And Abby, your analysis is correct. That that one was the lie. Yay! woo it was 11 times.
2: Oh, gosh. <laughs> yep. Wow. So, yeah. Very cool. You've, like, set the bar. Now I'm all nervous about how to figure out my two truths and why. Crap. <laughs> we'll have to talk about English handbells
0: since
1: you guys are handbell experts. That'll be one of our topics someday. Oh, I love handbells. We can totally talk handbells on a future topic. I'll, I will write that down. I will. make a note. I'll be left in the dust. I don't know anything about handbells.
2: As a little detour from handballs, uh, we do have our question today from one of our listeners. This is a little detour from handballs, I would say. Handballs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what our question is is what type of lubricants are recommended when we're trying to conceive? So, pretty straightforward. Carrie, what do you tell your patients?
1: So, I typically tell people there's the most data that's out about um, pre seed, is usually the one that I default to. Um, or uh, we were talking about this earlier, you know, what's what's your favorite household lubricant of choice for sex, not your car? The two are similar, but not related. <laughs> um, and, and so, we were talking about the various different oils and like vegetable oil, that kind of. Just go to your oil pantry. Oil. It's easier, cheaper. Yeah, olive oil. More available if you're in a hurry. Yeah. And but if you're hungry afterwards, you've maybe prep for
0: snack. Try something
1: up in the leftover
0: vegetable oil.
1: Oh.
2: Okay. Never mind. I digress.
0: <laughs> I didn't mean it the way it came out. Sorry.
2: <laughs> but probably the important part of the conversation is just I think a lot of, of my patients think that just because something is water based that it doesn't interfere with sperm function. And and that's actually not true. And so really kind of sticking to either something that's specifically fertility-minded, like pre-seed, or something in the realm of canola oil or vegetable oil, you just put in a little travel container and you can use that. So that is our segue to kind of talking about vaginas today. (laughs) Vagina monologues. Yeah, here we go. Woo. Yeah, we, as gynecologists, vaginas, unfortunately or fortunately, is part of our lingo. It is something that we discuss on a regular basis. Frequently,
1: as my husband will bring up, um, at, almost guaranteed to be at weddings and baby showers when someone asks me a question and then the room amazingly Quite, goes silent, yeah. right as I say the word vagina. Yeah. Like, I don't know how many times that has happened, but it's really... It used to be embarrassing. Now it's just like, eh, you knew who you were getting when That's you invited right. me. Yeah.
0: It's unfortunate, but true. It's it's amazing the things that people will tell you that you barely know at weddings and social gatherings. When you tell them you're a gynecologist, you open Pandora's box. <laughs>
2: it's, it's great. It's great. I'd much rather people ask me questions than the um, like silence and disperse. So I'd, I'd rather, you know, have the unusual conversation about vaginas. But what specifically today are we going to talk about vaginas, Abby? We
0: are specifically going to talk about vaginal abnormalities, which was Carrie's idea. Okay. So Carrie, why don't you start us
1: off and tell us about vaginal abnormalities? So this, we were talking the other day about Mullerian anomalies and... We talked about all of the uterine Mullerian anomalies, but... What's what's a Mullerian anomaly, by the way? (laughs) So the Mullerian anomalies. um, Please reference a few episodes ago with our Mullerian anomaly. But in case you didn't listen to that episode,
0: I know you're going to want to go back and do that. But in case you didn't, Carrie's going to tell you what a (laughs) Mullerian anomaly
1: is. So when... Boys and girls are itty bitty teeny tiny uh embryos then developing into fetuses, which I'm pretty sure is the correct plural of fetus and not feetae. Okay. Um, not feta. Sounds like too close to fungi. <laughs> uh and fetid too is not not a good thing. Mm. Um but feta cheese is okay. So anyway, when you have, can you guys tell it's been a long day at work? Um When you have a developing fetus, the male and female genitalia on the inside and on the outside have parallel structures. So it's super cool because all it takes is a little bit of influence from the Y chromosome for the males or a lack of influence from the Y chromosome for the females to develop those same structures into two completely different final products. And the Mullerian ducts are what ultimately turns into the internal female reproductive system, particularly the uterus tubes and the upper one third of the vagina. Now notice that I didn't mention the ovaries in there and I didn't mention the lower part of the vagina in there. We're going to overlap a little bit with the lower part of the vagina just because because um, <laughs> it's fun. Um, and this is the vagina monologues <laughs> today. And so So that's where that name came from is those Mullerian ducks and the corresponding uh, male ducks are the Wolfian ducks. So like when I give all these lectures, I've got pictures of mules up and pictures of wolves (laughs) up uh, in their cute little bow ties and and the mules are all female with the flowers in their hair to help remember which are which. But the Mullerian ducks ultimately become the female genitalia uh, internally.
0: So upper third, you said, is from the malarian ducts. And what about the two-thirds, lower two-thirds? Where does that come from? Oh, I'm sorry. Carrie's pointing to Susan. Susan, it's your turn now. Tell us where the lower two-thirds comes
1: from. Well, I don't want to hog the entire limelight because Susan would be mad if she didn't get to discuss all of the anatomy of (laughs) where the lower two-thirds. Abby, why don't you do it?
0: So it's called, isn't it the vaginal pouch? Honestly, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it basically there's an invagination that connects up with the the lower one third of the Mullerian tubes. They bump together and basically they should fuse. And if they don't fuse, there's an abnormality that occurs. And so the vagina then essentially hollows out. So upper third is from Mullerian tubes, lower two thirds is from the vagination of the vaginal pouch, I believe. And then basically, if that doesn't happen correctly, sometimes there can actually be a little piece of tissue there um, that is connected. And so a lot of times with these vaginal abnormalities, I think, these are determined or found a lot of times early as adolescence. Although I will say I've had a couple of people one in her 20s and one in her 30s that discovered that she had a vaginal abnormality and didn't realize it. And occasionally we see that in certain circumstances, but usually it's an abnormality that's found pretty early around the time that a girl goes through puberty, about the time she starts menstruating, mainly because if there's an obstruction there, there's no way for the vaginal blood to come out or the blood from the endometrium to come out, no place for the menstrual flow to come out. Basically, (laughs) um, there's a blockage there and it typically causes a lot of pain. And so Susan kind of lead us off, pick an abnormality of the vagina that you want to talk about.
2: So I kind of think about um, the abnormalities of the vagina as ones that kind of are what we call transverse versus longitudinal septums. Okay. And a septum is just a fancy word for a division. Okay. And so I think the most common septums that we see are the ones that go along the length of the vagina. So essentially, a lot of times what happens is you'll actually have kind of two halves of the vagina. And in this specific situation, if both parts are open, then a lot of times, people may not know that there's even something wrong unless they start maybe start trying to use tampons and realize that hey, I put in a tampon and and I keep on having bleeding because obviously the tampon's only in one half of the vagina,
1: the available tracks.
2: Uh, exactly, at the available tracks, and oftentimes what we see is one part of the uh, or one half of the vagina in that situation um, sometimes is a little. Bit bigger than the other side. So if people are sexually intimate, that kind of becomes like the dominant vagina and things like that. And so, one nice thing to know that is that in that type of situation, there are things that we can do to help those types of septums can be surgically removed. Now, anytime we see one of those lengthwise septums, we do want to make sure that we know how many services or openings to the uterus. Are there because sometimes there's one and sometimes there are two. And so that's something important for us to do. And generally, if we have one of those septums removed, you don't want to remove that past the cervix because then that could interfere kind of the integrity of everything in case you're wanting to have a baby and potentially delivery and those types of things.
0: Well, and sometimes too, I worry a little bit. If if you're doing fine and you have two vaginas that are both open side by side, it's probably not a big issue unless you have some discomfort with intercourse. I get a little nervous about taking those down or removing those septums because I worry that occasionally if there's a little bit of that septum that's left, then a patient who's done fine with intercourse can then start having problems. And so it really depends on the patient. Um, as Susan mentioned, if you put a tampon in, you know, on one side and you bleed out the other, if you want to wear tampons, then probably we need to take the septum down. But I think it's it's not a given that it has to be removed, I guess, is the point I want to make.
2: Yeah, I think all of us have had people who have made both choices. Um, I've had lots of people who've chosen to keep their septum. And then there's other people who it's bothersome to them and, and they want to have it resected. I do recommend just because it's not... Vaginal abnormalities are not some of the more common. I think we see uterine abnormalities more. And so for our listeners, if you are one of those people who does have a vaginal septum of some sort, I would probably recommend seeing a reproductive endocrinologist um, just because we probably have a little bit more experience in in dealing with those abnormalities than other physicians do. So
0: Carrie, what would you say if, one of our listeners had a child or say her as a teenager came and said, you know, I really want to put tampons in because I'm a swimmer or I do a lot of outdoor activities, but I can't put a tampon in. What would be your thoughts on that? What kind of abnormality would you think would be
1: going on? So at that point, I start to worry about more of assuming she's bleeding and needs to put the tampon in because the first thing that I think of whenever someone says, I can't put a tampon in is that they don't actually have the opening available. And so that means that they're just flat out have vaginal agenesis, meaning the vagina didn't grow, didn't pouch the way that it should. That's oftentimes associated with uterine agenesis where there's no uterus either. Um, And that's something that we didn't really talk about at our first part of this talk. Um, But those are really uncommon. I would say, I think
0: I've seen maybe one in 20 years that didn't have a uterus that attached to the vagina. Not impossible, but uh, real unlikely, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think I've only seen one or two as well. Um, The more common ones are where there is just a, a full lack of vagina and uterus. I think what is more common when you have menstrual flow and that's coming to the outside world and they can't put a tampon in, that's more likely to be a hymen that is intact in some form. And so normally the hymenal ring is around the what's called the introitus of the vagina.
2: And so so Carrie, what is the introitus? So
1: the introitus is the entrance. So if you think about when you go to put a tampon in, the introitus is right where you you kind of feel those muscles start to contract around the tampon for the first time, like in the first available place where you can have muscular control around it. And so the introitus is the entrance. It just refers to that general opening part. And so the hymen is right at the opening. So it's the most external part of the vagina. And sometimes that hymenal ring, what's supposed to happen is the tissue is supposed to get dissolved essentially, while you are developing so that by the time you come out, there's an opening there. And then later when a girl grows up and menstruates, it can fully come out. But that doesn't always happen. And so sometimes it just flat out doesn't dissolve. So the area is completely blocked. In that case, she would not have a period that she sees. She'd have a period that she feels and that's hormonally going on, but she can't see it because the blood can't get out.
2: And that's called an imperforate hymen.
1: Yeah, and usually the way you discover that is, you know, as a
0: teenager, you start having really severe menstrual cramps. And actually, one of the most common presentations actually is a 14, 15-year-old that can't go to the bathroom, can't urinate because there's so much pressure in the vagina, it compresses the urethra where you urinate. And that's sometimes the presentation. And so uh, I will say from a surgical standpoint, that's one of the most rewarding surgeries that I think we do because mm-hmm. it's, I think surgically for us, it's probably a pretty easy surgery and we're able to fix the problem pretty quickly. And, and most
1: patients heal really nicely from that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something where there are menstrual cramps, but at that point, the girl doesn't necessarily know that they are menstrual cramps when you have an imperforate hymen because no blood has come out. And so she's getting cramps about once a month, but she's not able to connect it with a menstrual cycle because the blood's not coming out. So you can have imperforate hymens that are totally blocked. You can also have septate or cribiform hymens. And septate is, like Susan said, a division where instead of being fully open, there's a line down the middle of it that's holding it. And usually it's there's some element of imperforation where it's not completely as open as you might want it to be. And then cribiform. it looks like somebody just took a Q-tip and poked a bunch of holes through it. So they're not itty bitty teeny tiny holes, but they're also not big enough to really be functional in letting all that blood out, particularly if there's clots or anything bigger, which teenagers can be a little bit more prone to. Um, and so that's what I start to think of when I hear of someone who says like, I need to put a tampon in, I know I'm bleeding, but I can't get one in.
2: Absolutely. So generally what we're talking about right now are transverse septums. Kind of think of it as it's a blockage from things coming out versus longitudinal is going to be up and down the vagina.
0: But it can also be blocked too, which leads us to the next item on the agenda. And that is um, basically a condition where you can have two uteruses, two cervices, And usually the right side, ironically, usually the right side doesn't connect. And so the way people figure out that they have that is, again, a lot of times it's related to pain. Sometimes, and I've seen a couple of people that are adults that presented and had a pouch there. And when we explored further, we realized that, in fact, it was actually a collection of blood. In other words, the vagina was completely walled off and the blood couldn't come out. And so that's called the medical term for that is obstructed hemivagina. And usually it's also associated with a missing kidney. And usually it's on the same side that the vagina is obstructed. And so with any of these abnormalities, we always have to make sure we look and make sure the kidneys are in place and that there's two kidneys and not just one kidney, particularly if we're going to operate on somebody.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually had a patient pretty recently who had that very specific condition and she was actually in her mid to upper twenties. And mm-hmm. what had happened would, um, periodically that obstructed hemivagina vagina would kind of open up and it would release the pressure. And it had been happening over and over essentially for 10 years. And we were able to do her surgery and she's been feeling fantastic ever since she, it really has been an amazing improvement in her quality of life.
0: Yeah, I can remember a case. I had one earlier this year too, but I can remember a teenager that I saw. And I, you know, I think as physicians, experience means everything when you see these unusual anomalies. And I saw a young girl, 14 or 15, that was having just some vaginal discharge and didn't smell very good. And occasionally she'd have irregular bleeding. And so, you know, I checked and she had a bacterial infection. I treated her for that and I gave her birth control pills. And so, long story short, as it turned out, what ultimately she had was this condition. She had this longitudinal vaginal septum, but the problem was it was open in several places and she actually got an infection because the vagina has a lot of germs normally in it. And so the blood that was kind of pooled there got infected. And actually she presented later on with sort of like a pelvic inflammatory disease type situation. Mm. So I learned a long time ago, make sure you ultrasound every young girl (laughs) that has unusual bleeding and and make sure that you check for something unusual like this. It's not something you expect, but we definitely see it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So Abby, what's the difference between a transverse vaginal septum compared to an imperforate hymen? Both of them have blocks, but how are they different? Well, usually with imperfect hymen,
0: usually in my experience, everything else is completely normal. It's just that tissue there right at the opening of the vagina hadn't gone away. So one uterus, two tubes, two ovaries with a transverse vaginal septum, just the upper part of the mullerian tubes haven't fused with the lower vagina essentially. And so... Sometimes that can be really thick and can be really challenging to operate on. Sometimes it can be really thin. Usually when we operate on those, we usually do something, or at least I do, to try and thin those out. Like have a patient use vaginal dilators so that it can thin out the septum so that when we did do that surgery, it's less thick tissue. But a lot of times it can be really thick and it can be really difficult surgery. Did I answer what you asked?
1: <laughs> yes, A+. Plus. You get a cookie. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And then there's the patients who, like we talked about a little earlier, just flat out have no vaginal outpouching at all. And so for those patients, usually dilators are the first place we go. And oftentimes they don't have a uterus at all. And so they need somebody else to carry their pregnancy, but they just use dilators. And with a little bit of pressure a couple times a day, they eventually can develop enough of a vagina over a relatively short period of time in order to have sex. Um, There's a couple other ways to get that vagina to be developed. Um, Some people do a surgical procedure called a McIndoe where they take a little part of the I'm going to say, is that one the one where they put the bowel in? Abby, helped me out. No, Macado's
0: where they take a, they do a skin graft and you wrap it around a form and then you, you create a space to basically create the vagina and you essentially
1: sew it in the right place. Going back to having flashbacks to fellowship, <laughs> doing Macado's versus Vecchietti's where you take a... Triangle. That's what I was going to say. There's a lapar- laparoscopic
0: procedure, the Vecchietti. And what I would say for those kind of surgeries, you really need to go to somebody who does those surgeries a lot because they're really unique surgeries that are not done very often. And one thing I was going to add about vaginal dilators too, for anybody out there that's using a vaginal dilator to create a vagina, make sure that your doctor sees you back within the first couple of months. And then probably every two months you need to be seen. Um, It sounds really crazy, but sometimes people can dilate Things like their urethra and not realize they're doing that. Um, and it sounds crazy, but I've actually seen somebody fairly recently that did that. And so it's really, really important that your doctor check and make sure that you're dilating, you know, your vagina and not other areas that shouldn't be dilated.
2: Good point. Absolutely. So I think we've had a lot of vagina talk today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think so.
2: It's good. It is good. It's a good place. <laughs>
1: <laughs> give me a vagina any day over an eyeball or teeth.
2: Oh, I do not like eyeballs. Oh, <laughs> they're so weird. I we know. I'm glad we have our ophthalmologist colleagues because. Ugh.
0: I was wondering where you're going with that. It kind of that flew over my head for a second. I'm like, what does the vagina
2: have? No, to do it's with eyeballs just I really don't totally like eyeballs. <laughs> no eyeballs
1: and teeth. Totally. Like whenever I tell someone, I would much rather give me a vagina, erectum, urethra any day of the week over eyeballs, mouth, or...
0: Yeah, mouth, respiratory secretions, yeah. Vagina's fine, respiratory secretions. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I usually get funny looks when I say that, but I get funny looks when I say lots of things. So just add it to the box.
0: (laughs) All right, well, on that note, guys, I think we're going to wrap it up. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really glad to hear from you.
2: You can also visit Fertility Docs Uncensored to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit the specific questions you have about infertility. All of the questions are answered on the podcast anonymously in our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right,
1: y'all. We'll see you soon. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Y'all Bye. take care. Bye.